We're going to be in uh, James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27 this morning. So if you've got your Bible there, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the chair right in front of you. So as uh, I ran across something while I was preparing for this, this message, um, something, I'll be honest, I wasn't real familiar with. I, I mean, I think I had heard about it before, but it was one of those things that kind of came in my mind and wasn't really relevant to me, so it went back out, you know. Um, but I was kind of reminded of it. It's something that's called auditing, auditing. And I'm not talking the IRS kind, um, so you can relax a little bit. Um, I'm talking about auditing a class. How many here are familiar with that term? Few of you, okay. Um, my guess would there would be a few that were familiar with that, uh, either familiar with the term or, or perhaps they did it themselves. How many have done it themselves? A few, okay. Um, okay. Maybe at one time or another, they audited a class or a course. Um, for those that don't know what that is, because I saw several hands go up, but not all of them. For those that don't know what it is, here's a little explanation. And I, and I got this from Wikipedia, <clears throat> which is not necessarily the, the greatest source of knowledge on the interweb, but, uh, but I did like the way they put this. So in academia, an audit is an educational term for the completion of a course of study for which no assessment of the performance of the student is made nor grade awarded. Some institutions may record a grade of audit to those who have elected not to receive a letter grade for a course in which they are typically awarded. In this case, audit indicates that the individual merely has received teaching rather than being evaluated as having achieved a given standard of knowledge of the subject. The term audit is Latin, translating as he or she hears. Well, isn't that interesting, considering last week's message? In other words, the audit, the audit student has experienced the course, but has not been assessed. Some students audit a class merely for enjoyment including purposes of self-enrichment and academic exploration, with no need or desire of academic credit. Sometimes this technique is employed by individuals who wish to take a specific course without the risk of underperformance, resulting in a poor or failing grade. This may be helpful when reviewing a long, unstudied subject, or when first beginning or exploring the study of a discipline where one has little experience or confidence. So to kind of summarize that, if you, if you audit a class, you take it for no credit. You still attend the class, you, you learn from the lectures, you have access to the textbooks, the instructor and, and the learning materials, but you don't have to do the assignments. You don't have to take the tests. No pressure to perform or, or anything. There is no passing or failing. I thought, well, isn't that interesting? I think that's pretty fitting for today's verses and, and message. 
I ran across some comments someone made about his experienced auditing a class. He said, I love the courses I audited. After I graduated from Dallas Seminary in 1977, I returned a couple of years later and audited Beginning Hebrew, which was being taught by my good friend Jack Deere. I had already taken two years of Hebrew, but I wanted to brush up and refresh myself. It was great just sitting there and listening without the pressure of having to know it well enough to pass an exam. I watched it with a degree of joy and satisfaction, as well as relief. As the other students memorized words and paradigms and verb forms, wondering if they would remember it all well enough to pass, I just listened and learned at my own pace, and then walked away without having to do a thing. It was the same in other classes I audited. I didn't have the pressure of conducting research or writing a term paper or being prepared should the professor have asked me a question. It was great. The best thing of all in auditing a course like that is that you didn't even have to show up for class if you didn't want to. The professor couldn't rebuke you for being absent. Your overall grade point average remained unaffected, even if you chose never to attend class. If you preferred to sleep in or stay out late or hang out with friends, everything was a go. There was never any fear of consequences. Wow. Unfortunately, many approach the Christian faith and life the same way. They treat Christianity much like a college course that they're auditing. They show up when they feel like it. They learn about as much as they please, but they never feel like they they have to do anything. They soak up the knowledge. They they enjoy the music. They make friends with the people. They feel no urgency or obligation to do anything beyond sitting and listening. They're what James calls hearers of the word only, but not doers. These are the people in churches who are thrilled to do what we talked about last week. Receive with meekness the implanted word. They love listening. They look forward to soaking in the sermon, but they're deceived. They've been duped into thinking that hearing and believing is all that you need to do. Just make sure that your your doctrinal ducks are in a row. Sometimes these people can argue your your ears off. They may understand the complex intricacies of of Christian theology. Some are rather proud of their intellectual achievements. But they're often the ones not actually doing the work of the church. They greatly emphasize the grace of God and accuse others of putting too, too much emphasis on works. Like so many college classrooms across the country, they are auditing the Christian faith. They hear, but they don't do. They listen and they learn, but rarely, if ever, put into practice what they know. They rest rather smugly in the extent of their knowledge but rarely express it in real actions of obedience, compassion, and sacrifice. Let's turn to our scripture this morning, James 1, 22 through 27. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained in the world. Here in James 1, 22 through 27, James is making a critically important point that the word of God is not something merely to be believed, but it's also something to obey. This revelation that God has given us in the scriptures is not just a list of the doctrines that call for our intellectual consent. Should we believe every jot and tittle in the Bible? Absolutely, yes. Every word, every syllable, every sentence is the product of the creative breath of God. Do you want truth? You find it in the Bible. Do you want to know right from wrong? You find it in the Bible. Do you want to understand who God is and and why the universe exists? What God's purpose is in redeeming and forgiving people like, like you and me? The answers are found in the Bible. And they're just as relevant today as when they were written. But the Bible is not just an answer book. It's more than a a theological encyclopedia. It's not an inspired version of Siri on spiritual steroids. The Bible is not meant to just satisfy your, your mental and theological curiosity. They're not given so that you can impress others with how much you know, how much information and insight you can cram into your brain. The scriptures were given so that in knowing truth, we might live it. In understanding God and his purposes, we might practice it. And in gaining insight and discernment, we might conduct ourselves in such a way that that God is truly honored and and people are blessed. Last week, we looked to see if we had a receptive heart so we can receive with meekness the implanted word because it has the power to save our souls. This week, we'll look at the result that implanted word into our receptive heart should be. We should be doers of the word. It's important for us to note that James uses the noun doers rather than the verb doing. It's one thing to be doing the word, a little here and a little there, Maybe a little bit on Monday and maybe a little bit more on Thursday. But it's something else entirely to be the person who is, all, is so known for righteous living day in and day out. Such a part of their character that they're called a doer of the word. This suggests someone whose routine habit in life is doing what he believes to be right and true. People who make the doing of God's word the business of their life. It's their job, it's their hobby, it's their their passion all wrapped up into one. 
doing what God has commanded permeates everything about them. Their values, their words, their conduct, their relationships, the way they use their money, their sexual behavior, everything, everything. How do we often start off a conversation with someone that we don't know, that, we, that maybe we're just first meeting? Usually, especially guys, we ask, what do you do? What's your occupation, right? Usually we hear something like, well, I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, I'm a salesman, I'm, I'm a plumber, I'm a carpenter, I'm, or maybe I'm a stay-at-home mom or student, something like that. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could, without the slightest degree of arrogance or pride, answer that question by saying, I'm a doer of God's word. Whoa, could you, could you imagine the look on people's faces? That's how you responded? What kind of conversations that would start? Something for us to think about. It's important for us to remember, he doesn't say that all you are is a doer of the word. You must first be a hearer. It's no more possible to be a doer only than it is to be a hearer only. To to be a hearer only leads to arrogance, pride, self-sufficiency, and an argumentative attitude. But to be a doer only leads to self-righteousness self-reliance, and oftentimes to theological heresy. So is one more important than the other? No. But there is a proper sequence. One must first hear before he can properly do. If you start doing before hearing, you're likely to end up thinking that Christianity is, is little different than the social activism of our world. You may end up doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. You have to know what is right and good and eternal. Otherwise, you end up doing things that are wrong and bad and temporal. James wants to remind us that if we stop hearing, we're little more than overblown brains, big heads whose hearts are shrunken, souls are small, See, sometimes we we fall into the trap of supposing that thinking about what is good is the same as doing what is good. We're deceived into thinking that we are less selfish because we admire the virtue of altruism, right? We think because we admire humility that we are, for that reason alone, less prideful than others. We do not achieve virtue or goodness in life merely by paying tribute to those values or by claiming their absence in our hearts. They have to be seen in our lives, how we relate to others. That brings us to our next point, the mirror, verses 23 through 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In the previous paragraph, James compared the word to the seed. We talked about that last week. But in this one, he compares it to a mirror. 
There are two other references in the Bible to, to God's word as a mirror. And if you put all three together, you discover three ways God's word serves as a mirror. We're going to look at those this morning. The first one is found here, verses 23 through 24. Examination. That's the main purpose of having a mirror. To be able to see yourself and make yourself as clean and tidy as possible, right? When we look into the mirror of God's word, we see ourselves as we really are. Not what we think we look like, not what we hope we look like, what we really look like. But you have to slow down and pay attention. Some people take a casual look at God's word without it letting it affect their life. Like the, the person looks so quickly in the mirror that the flaws go undetected and, and nothing is changed. James says you have to look intently. That's from the Greek word kataneo. It means to observe fully, carefully consider, discern, detect. It's the same verb used by Luke and John to describe how Peter and Mary looked into the empty tomb after Jesus' resurrection. Now, <clears throat> I can imagine that they didn't just glance in there. can't imagine they came to the tomb and just looked in and went, yeah, guess he's not here. Well, no, I'm sure, I'm sure, sure they looked very closely. Like, where, where is he? Where did he go? He's got to be in here. It's kind of dark. I, I've got to look really, maybe he's in the corner. They looked intently. Remember, they, they weren't expecting him to rise from the dead, were they? They expected him to be in there. So they would have been looking intently. Where did he go? How did he get out of here? It's how we're to look at ourselves as God's word reflects back on us. Intently. Like Job in, in Job 13.23. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense, my sin. We should use God's word to examine ourselves. Next, God's word is a mirror that helps us in cleaning. Cleaning. It's Exodus 38.8. It says, He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Moses, when he, when he built the tabernacle, he took the metal mirrors from the women there and he made the lever basin. <clears throat> and it was filled with water. And that's where the priests would wash their hands and their feet before they, they entered into the holy place to minister. Water for washing is a picture of the cleansing power of the word. John 15, 3, Jesus says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The church is, is cleansed and sanctified with the washing of water by the word, Ephesians 5, 26. The laver basin at the tabernacle could only wash away the outer filth. But God's word washes away the filth that's inside. 
1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. The mirror of God's word not only examines us and reveals our sins, but it, it helps us to cleanse it from it too. Next, we see the mirror of God's word brings transformation. Transformation. That's from 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The Lord, after the Lord shows us our sin, he cleanses us from it. And then he wants to change us so that we can grow, so that we don't commit it again. Paul's illustration here is of, is of Moses when he came down from the mount, when he had met with God. And his face was shining. Remember that? His face was shining. So he, he put the veil on so that the people would not see it fade. The veil was also a reminder of the separation between God and man. When Jesus died, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. It's different now. There's nothing in the way now. Amen? Amen. The child of God looks into the mirror of the word of God. He sees the Son of God. And he is transformed by the Spirit of God to share in the glory of God. The word transformed comes from the Greek word that we get, the English word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. It's a change on the outside that comes from the inside. When an ugly worm turns into a beautiful, beautiful butterfly, that's metamorphosis. The same thing happens to a believer that spends time looking into God's word and seeing Christ. They're transformed. Romans 12, 2, being transformed by the renewing of their mind. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The mirror of God's word transforms us as we see Jesus. Our minds are renewed, and he changes us from the inside out. James says, someone who hears but doesn't do is deceiving themselves. Like someone that looks in a mirror doesn't do anything about what they see. Now imagine someone getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Serious case of bedhead. Eyes all bloodshot. Unshaven. Eyebrows. Need a trim. Maybe a few pimples have popped up overnight. Ugh. But then they notice the time. Oops, running late. Important meeting today. They turn off the light and they walk out the bathroom door. They throw on some clothes and out the door they go. James is telling us that spiritual primping is a good thing. We're to closely examine God's word. Gaze intently into the mirror of Scripture. Take note of the reflection of ourselves that we see there. Then we must do something about it. We must tend to each unsightly pimple or blemish. 
We need to brush our hair. We need to trim those eyelashes. Shave if you need to. Scriptures are a spiritual mirror designed to expose and reveal our condition. The principles of God's word tells us what is out of sync with God's will. It brings conviction to our hearts about the ways we're offending God. But to see that, to know that, even to to feel that and then do nothing is as absurd as the self-absorbed person that stares in their reflection. Take notices of all the the stains and the blemishes and everything else and, and they walk away, do nothing. Look into the mirror of God's word and then do something about what you see. The perfect law of liberty. Notice that the word of God is called the perfect law of liberty. First, it says it's perfect. It's perfect because Scripture is inerrant. It's sufficient. It's comprehensive. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to take away. It's complete. It's perfect. Amen? Next, it says it's the, the law of liberty. Now, isn't that a a contradiction of terms? How can something legal liberate? Doesn't law enslave us and restrict our behavior? How can you experience liberty from something that is law? Well, first, first we're free from the law as a means of salvation. So there's that. That's a pretty big one. And the word of God has a power to set you free. Jesus clears this up for himself in John 8, 31 through 36. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practice, practices sin is a slave to sin. But if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's like that song that we sang a minute ago. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. What freedom we have when we embrace him and his rules. Obeying our emotions and giving in to all our sinful desires is true slavery. But accepting God's will, we're truly free to be what God created us to be. Once upon a time, there was a little bird. But he wasn't an ordinary little bird. He was a spine-tailed swift. Spine-tailed swifts have been clocked flying at 106 miles an hour. That's one fast bird. And one day he thought, I'll be the best flyer in the country. So he practiced, and he exercised, and he did special bird exercises. And he got faster, and faster, and faster. But he wasn't satisfied, and he wanted to go even faster. He wanted to be the fastest bird in the world. So he pondered the problem, and then he came to a conclusion. He thought, I know what's wrong. 
I'm too heavy. I need to get rid of some extra weight. That will make me go faster. But he wasn't fat, so he wondered, what could he do? Suddenly, he realized he could be a whole lot lighter if he just got rid of those feathers. So he did. Guess what? Then he couldn't fly at all. Sometimes people think, all these constraints in my life. God says, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. It's just weighing me down. But God wants us to fly. But if you start shaking off God's requirements, you'll never fly. You'll never fly. Obedience to God's word sets us free to be what God wants us to be. His commandments are not a hindrance. They're our freedom. And the end of the verse 25 says he will be blessed in his doing. God's blessings come as he sets us free as we obey his word. Pure and undefiled religion, verses 26 through 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James isn't content to simply tell us the importance of right behavior. General principles only go so far. So in verses 26 and 27, he provides us with three specific examples of what doing the implanted word looks like. But before we look at these three examples, let me say something about the word translated religious in verse 26 and religion in verse 27. Today, the word religion is out of style. It's often thought to be synonymous with legalism and externalism. The Pharisees were profoundly religious because they obeyed the law with meticulous detail. People can get caught up in an act of following ceremonies and rules, but they fail to embrace or understand the true love of God. And you've heard me say up here that we don't follow a religion, but Christ. We are not religionists. We're Christians. And that's true. But in James' day, it did not have the, the same bad name. That came later in the, the 20th century. The people of James' day had no problem with the idea of religion. To them, it simply referred to the totality of their spiritual experience. Your religion encompassed both what you believe and, and how you behave. He says he deceives himself. His religion is worthless. It is self-deception to have a, a religious practice that do not lead to an ethical lifestyle. We're deceived when we believe a, a distorted view of God's character. We're deceived when we listen to God's word and, and don't take any action. We're deceived when we rationalize to ourselves that our beliefs can just be expressed in ritual with no real obedience. Even our outward religious practices are worthless without obedience. And it's worthless if we don't allow its power to our lives. 
to make the changes that it needs to make. So James says, don't do that. That's worthless. Pure and undefiled. Then he tells us what is good and godly religion looks like in in 26 and 27. And he focuses on three things. Our speech, our service, and our separation. First, speech. James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now try to imagine a person who obeys the rules and never steals or lies. A person who is generous with their, their time and their money. But they're always yelling at people. They're always putting them down. They're critical and sarcastic and, and judgmental. Even though they seem to always abide by the rules. They can, they can make a sailor blush with the vulgar things that they say. This is the person who sings loud and passionately, having, having memorized every word to a song. They serve in, in children's ministry and they hand out bulletins. But gossip and slander, they undermine others with their mouth. The kind of person who pretends to be religious or spiritual and yet talks like the world does. What he's heard of the word has made little difference in his speech. You'd say, is that the, the same mouth that you praise God with? Things that come out of it? James says it clearly and, and forcefully as he can. He pulls no punches. If you say you're religious, if you, if you say you love Jesus, but you don't bridle your tongue, if you're given to gossip, slander, profanity, angry speech and criticism, your faith is worthless. Your so-called religion amounts to nothing. Your so-called Christianity is a sham. The mouth reveals the condition of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do we praise our spouse in public but humiliate them in private? Do we build up and encourage our children or do we shame them? How are you using your tongue? What's your speech like? The answer to those questions is perhaps the, the clearest and most explicit measure of the value of our religion and our devotion to Jesus. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You don't want that. You don't want that. Instead, Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Watch your speech. Second, service. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now this is not to to be taken as an exhaustive portrayal of true God-honoring religion. These are, are representative actions. When James speaks of orphans and widows, he has in mind any and all who are hurting and in pain and in great need. He mentions orphans and widows because in the ancient world they, they, were, 
They were the most vulnerable. They were easily taken advantage of, with no one to protect them. Widows usually couldn't get a job. And they had no access to the inheritance. That went to the eldest son. And if he or another family member wasn't willing to care for them or take them in, they could be left with few good choices. Usually relegated to, to begging, maybe selling themselves as a slave, or just starving. And that's why Moses told the people of Israel, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Exodus twenty-two twenty-two. See, how many people are a bit more eager to go help a rich person? Maybe, maybe with silent hopes of a nice, generous reward for our ministry. I mean, I mean, they have to leave the money to someone, right? But to serve someone that can't, that can't offer you anything in return, that shows, that shows the true heart for serving. When you give of your time, talents, and resources to help someone that has little or no hope of giving you something back in return, that's the kind of service God expects from us. To visit the orphan or the widow or anyone who is suffering doesn't mean an occasional trip to their house or to the hospital, although, although that's surely important. He's talking about making sacrifices to supply their needs. Talking about taking their burdens unto our hearts. Talking about investing time and energy and money to their lives. Our service should be heartfelt, sacrificial. And then separation, separation. Keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a picture of how Christian character should look. To keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, we need to commit ourselves to Christ's ethical and moral system, not the world's. We're not to adapt the world's value system. True faith means nothing if we're contaminated with these values. James was simply echoing the words of Jesus in what is called his high priestly prayer from John 17. Jesus says he's sending his disciples into the world, but he's expecting them to not be of the world. The heart of Jesus' prayer was John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. John 17, 18 says, Jesus, send, Jesus sends, into the world, sends us into the world to help win others to him. It's only as we maintain our separation from the world that we're able to do this. We need to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Godly religion, biblical Christianity, is a matter of more than being a, a hearer only. More than being an auditor that listens and learns, but with no commitment to test or put it into place, into practice. It's more than looking intently into the Word and using it as a mirror. We need to do that. We do need to use it to, to examine ourselves, to, to allow us to clean us up, 
to allow its transforming power into our lives. And it's also more than just embracing the freedom that we have in the law of liberty. It must also be shown in the way we live, how we behave. It needs to be shown in our speech, in our service, in our separation from the world. What matters more, what you believe or how you behave? Is Christianity a creed to be confessed or a life to be lived? What should we devote ourselves, hearing God's word or doing God's word? The simple answer is yes. Yes. Can't say it any better than James. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now sometimes, sometimes we don't like what God's word tells us. Sometimes we don't like what it tells us to do. Sometimes we're, we're just not feeling it. But James says, get over yourself. Get over yourself. Be a doer. This is the evidence of the receptive heart that received the word. You heard it. It's shown you what you need to do. You've accepted it. It's begun its work in you. Now he expects you to live it. Be a doer. No more excuses. No more delays. No more procrastination. I don't often agree with them, but as the the philosopher Nike said, it's time to just do it. Time to just do it. There must be evidence of your faith. There must be evidence of your faith. Otherwise, your religion is worthless. Otherwise, you're you're just following a list of rules. You're no different than the world. There must be a difference in the way you live and what you do. We were sent into the world to make disciples, to be a light, to be salt, right? Means we need to be different. God gave us his word to show us where we've failed and what we need to do to fix it. He expects us to do it. And then he expects us to take that truth out there. Share that with them. You must be a doer of the Word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you again, grateful and thankful for your Word. Father, I pray that you would, that you would forgive those of us who have not been doers, those of us who have been content to just audit our faith. We've been willing to come and and listen and learn and take it all in, but have had no interest in putting it to a test. 
no interest in really showing what we've learned. Father, I, I, I pray that you would forgive those of us that have had that attitude. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to repent from that, to turn from that, and to embrace your word, to look into it as a mirror as it shows the things that we need to change about ourselves, that we would do it. That we would live a life, a, a pure, undefiled religion before the world. That it would, what we believe would be shown in the way we act, the way we behave. Father, that we would be outside of ourselves, that our speech would always be seasoned with salt, that we would always seek to uplift others, that the lips that we use to praise and say the name of Jesus would not be used to say vulgar or profane things as the world does, that the actions of our, our life would be to serve those who need help the most, that we would come alongside them, that we would feel their pain, that we would serve sacrificially and authentically. And I pray that you would help us to, to remain unstained by the world, that we would not be drawn in by what the world's, world's answers are, what the world says is right or wrong, that we would not compromise in any way. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. We ask that you will help us to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. For your glory, in the name of Jesus, amen.